0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help.
0: Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages.
1: Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla
0: doesn't just fix acne, you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day.
1: As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the
0: what and how of raising kids through puberty that roller coaster of physical
1: and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescents, ours and theirs.
0: Michelle Borba is the perfect person to have on the Puberty Podcast as we search for answers about how to help. Tweens and teens thrive. She has worked in the classroom as an educator for both mainstream and special needs kids. She has spoken to audiences around the world and written several books packed with strategies to strengthen children's character, resilience, and to reduce peer cruelty. You may recognize her voice from hundreds of appearances across a wide range of news programming. Or her words may sound familiar because she's been featured in just about every big newspaper and magazine out there. But what we love most about her credentials, and there's a long list of them, so a lot of love, are the numerous awards she has won for her work in education. This is a true expert in her field, someone who moves seamlessly from the classroom to the stage. Thank you Michelle so very much for sharing your wisdom on the Puberty podcast.
2: Oh gosh, thank you. I'm hiring you as my new
1: PR firm.
2: That was so <laughs> nice. I so appreciate that.
1: <laughs> thank you. Michelle, let's start with your latest work, Thrivers, which is dedicated to helping kids and the adults in their lives do just that, thrive. It's such an interesting concept. And we want to know what motivated you to frame your work this way. Was it something that you were hearing from the kids whom you interview that sparked the interest? Was it something that had been sort of percolating for a long time? Talk us through that journey for you.
2: Well, I think the first most important thing is you need to know for 40 years, I've been trying to figure out the answer to this one question. Why do some kids struggle and others shine? And it started with a special ed teacher realizing that despite extreme emotional learning or behavior problems, some kids were still bouncing back. But the next thing that happened is I spent so much time in and out of schools across the country and around the world. And usually before I go and talk to the schools, I ask the counselor if I can do a focus group with the students. And that's where my uh, radar went up prior to the pandemic particularly with middle school kids, because I kept hearing the same term over and over again, we feel empty. And these were well-loved, well-educated kids, but we're running on empty, they said. Uh, I began to see a trend that was extremely concerning, that one in five American kids was going to suffer from some kind of a mental health disorder. And then came the pandemic. Well, a crisis only amplifies a pre-existing problem. We're now looking at what now, know the CDC says is one in three kids are going to suffer from a mental health disorder. So it became extraordinarily important to figure out. So how do we help kids bounce back? And that became the book Thrivers. I, I spent a lot of time looking at the science that isn't in any of our parenting books, the science and the evidence on resilience. And there's extremely important long term studies that looked at cohorts of kids in homelessness, in sexual abuse in extreme difficulties, and they still bounce back. And that became the focus of the book. What's the commonality of each one of those science-backed studies? And there became seven traits that seem to be teachable. The thrivers is each chapter is one of those traits. And what I'm trying to do is get in the hands of parents. We got to reboot our parenting because it's an uncertain, fear-based world that we're raising our kids in. And they say they need these skills because we're not prepared for life. "Quote unquote," says the children.
0: There is so much there. Yeah, I'm gonna go to one point to begin, and then we'll keep going back to everything you just said because there's a lot to unpack. I want to start with how you actually write and how you balance science with your own field research because it's amazing. Oh, um, it, as and and this is true of of everything that you put out there. You are this treasure trove who is both reporting good science, very important, and you've got firsthand quotes from kids and parents throughout all of your writing. Tell us what's that process like? How do you find the people that you're going to interview? What does it look like, a typical interview setup? Kind of walk us through and give us a visual there.
2: Thank you. How I write is almost always driven by what kids say because I have learned along the way, just listen to the kids. Not only do they give you the problem, but they also give you the solution. So the first thing is I started interviewing kids and I did focus groups at the beginning that were about 10 kids in number. And then I decided to dig deeper and do one-on-one hour interviews with kids on a phone just by themselves, because I found they were far more open when they realized they weren't seeing my face and anything they said is not going to be using their names. Well, that became the whoa moment of... This is much more difficult in terms of the problem than I realized before. The second thing is, I took all the hundreds of hours of the kids and came up with so, what's the top concerns they had? And then went to the science. So, what's causing it? And that became fascinating because with that piece of the writing, I bought tons of post it notes. I guess <laughs> mm-hmm. what I did was go through the science and say, what's common with that study, that study, that study, that study, and then come up with piles of what's the commonalities of what could be causing this problem. It had to be based on really good proof of studies that were going on for 40 years with the same
0: cohorts of kids. That's where I was going to go with it, which is, so the studies are old, right? I mean, it takes a long time to collect the data. So have you found that using this hybrid system, that you are able to stay in front of the curve, that you see where things are going? Do you feel like you have your finger on the pulse? And if so, what are you seeing down the road? Like, What's next?
2: What's next? Yes, I see a pulse and it's fascinating because I wrote Thrivers and almost everything in Thrivers was published the month before the pandemic hit. I didn't realize how bad it was going to be in terms of the pandemic, but I did realize if we keep this route going on, it's only going to exasperate the pre-existing issues. I wrote another book called Unselfie, which was on the empathy problem. And the empathy was dipping like leaps and bounds. And I kept saying to myself, if we keep up this path, it's only going to just exasperate even more. It's now at a 40% dip. So, There's something about the science that if you listen to the science and you look at proven stuff, it almost always mattered along the way. What I then began to do is look at what the kids were saying now versus then. And my biggest heart is fluttering back and forth because every piece that they said before is only amplified. I just did a focus group in Florida, Texas, and another one that came out of California. And I asked the kid the first questions in groups of what's the one word that would describe you or your friends right now and doesn't make any difference where they are. They say overwhelmed. Okay. What's another word? Stressed. What's another word? Empty. Uh, Then I'd say, what's causing it? And the concerns were that they all said we needed a different skill set. We're really good at test taking, but we don't have the skills that are helping us get ready for life. Like what, I said. And the fascinating thing is time management kept coming up. And I'd say to them, I think you've been taught that. And they all said, Oh, this is the glorious part. Yeah, we've been taught that stuff. We also need stress management, but here's what's going on wrong. Okay, what's going on wrong? We're taught it like a worksheet, or we're taught it like a part of our textbook. And it's not something you read in a textbook. The missing piece that we're not getting is practicing it nearly enough so we can do it without mom and dad or without the teacher. And unless we do the practice stuff, we won't be able to do it when the, when the real challenge hits us. And that's why we're floundering. Oh, I w-
1: brilliant. <laughs> I want to pick up on that, Michelle, because one of the themes that comes up in our podcast when we interview experts about how adults manage kids is that there's a disconnect between what mm. adults claim they want for kids and for kids to be doing, right? We just want our kids to be happy. Yeah, We just want them to find purpose and meaning. But by the same token, they're also saying, why aren't you getting these grades? Why aren't you getting these scores? Why aren't you spending more time on your homework? Or they're micromanaging their kids, right? So at this hour, you need to do this and that hour you need to do that. And kids never learn how to manage their own time as you're hearing from them. So I'm curious if... You have advice, and this came up in our conversation with Rachel Simmons, who's a wonderful researcher and writer about this kind of calling BS essentially on what adults claim they want for kids. What is your advice for a parent or a teacher who's caring for kids who are overwhelmed and who need help being more efficient, pulling back on all the over scheduling and over stress? What's the first step? they can take to more authentically support the kids in their lives?
2: Oh, great question. Uh, And the kids would confirm, yes, they need to have that question. The first thing is you don't change your parenting or your teaching styles unless you understand there's a problem. Then we continue doing the same thing. So I think the first thing is we all need to push pause And look at what if we keep doing the way we're doing, what's going to be the impact on our children and the impact on our children. If we keep helicoptering them, managing their time or not helping them learn how to handle stress is you're robbing them of resilience. When you look at what's the world going to be like, it's not the same as our own childhood. And it's certainly not the same as just 10 years ago. We're looking at children who are really floundering. I know we love our kids desperately, but it's a different world and we can't use the same parenting. So number two, what do we do? And we go, so where do we start? I think the first thing is take each week, maybe make it simple. Don't make this overwhelming. So you want to raise the white flag yourself. But the first thing is look at what your kids are not capable of doing, or look at what you're always doing and managing for your kids. And maybe what your kids would say is, and they actually are telling me this, juniors in high school are saying, please, we're not prepared for life. Like, what do you need to know? Like how to run the microwave or how to do the dishwasher or how to make the bed. I mean, simple stuff like that. So maybe it's each week, take one thing and that'll make it simple. And then begin to do three things. Anytime you teach a skill to a kid, and this is what you're looking at. Any of those are skills. How to manage your time, how to set a goal, how to run the microwave. You first identify it. Then you show your child with them watching. The next thing you do is you do it together. Now let's do it together so that you can correct when he's doing it wrong. The third thing is now show me and you step back. And once your kid can do it, you go, bravo, keep doing it. You're on your own and never step in and do for your kid what your kid could do for yourself. You add the next
0: skill, the next skill, the next skill. That sounds so darn simple, but that's exactly what to do. In medical school, it's the mantra, see one, do one, teach one. That's. Drop. That's, that's, what it. It, it, that's it. But I do want to acknowledge, because I think this is important, that as we ask ourselves as parents and the other parents around us to reassess what we are valuing and how we are behaving yes. on a day-to-day basis, this is hard to do when the world still rewards parents for behaving otherwise. So it's really hard when the gold ring that kids want to achieve, whether it's a sports accomplishment or a writing accomplishment or college or whatever it is, where that metric seems to still be very entangled with this type of helicopter, snowplow, whatever you want to call it, parenting. And so it takes guts.
1: For parents to step back. Well, and and you have a point, Michelle, in the book, which is parent the kid that you have, not the kid you you wish you had or you want to have. And this dynamic, Cara, is so tied up in parents wanting their kids to be a certain kind of kid or have a certain kind of accomplishment. So, Michelle, that I love the concrete nature of the teaching the skill, right? It's like when they were little, you taught them how to tie their shoes. And it was so painful every morning before they went to school because it was like 20 minutes of watching them tie their shoes when you knew you could do it in 30 seconds and get out of the house. So there's the like tween and teen equivalent of that. And it's still painful watching them make scrambled eggs or you watching mean them the tween
0: and teen equivalent of tying shoes, which is tying shoes. Right. Which they still don't do. <laughs>
1: Correct. Correct. Um, so Michelle, there's the concrete skill of like, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to step back. But how do adults handle the emotional skill of recognizing, I don't have the kid I hoped I would have, or I don't have the kid I thought I would have. How do I adjust my expectations and meet my kid where that kid is? Because that's like an existential skill for adults. How do we begin that process? you begin the process by tuning
2: in closer to your child. A dad told me the, the best story ever. And he said, he's a very successful dad. And he was an attorney. He said, I got two sons. I wanted to be attorneys. I realized that the first son is really into technology. He's doing great in that. So I let go and said, go for it. But my, my middle school kid, All he talks about was wolves. I went, Oh my gosh, this is absurd. What kid talks about wolves? So one day I said, Enough is enough. I'm going to take him to a park ranger. We're going to have a great father son day. And I'm just going to have him understand this thing about wolves. Well, I sat there with my mouth open because that day I learned so much about my kid that I never realized. My son was discussing wolves at a level that I didn't realize existed. He was politely correcting the park ranger. And that was my moment that said, I am not parenting my kid based on who he is. I'm parenting based on what I want him to be. And that mm-hmm. was my moment that said, enough is enough. It's not in the lies in the biology and stop. And all of a sudden it changed the dynamics. What his advice when he was talking to me is we got to tune in closer to our kids. It may not be the kid that we have our own dream set for, but if you really want a happy kid, and I think in the end, that's what we all want. You got to follow the child. And there becomes the parenting.
0: And it's okay if the kid doesn't know who they are quite yet as well. So uh, that's another hard thing for parents. The hurdle is a little bit lower when your child is telling you who they are. A higher hurdle for some parents is when your child says, I'm just a kid floundering around out here trying to figure out what I like and what I don't like. And I'm going to try this this year. No, I don't like it. I'm going to try that next year. And again, we live in a world at the moment where that is not super acceptable. And yet that's what childhood is.
2: Well, and not only is it what a childhood is, there's a couple other reasons why we have got to tune in. When we look at thrivers, there's seven traits. The first one I discovered is the most essential is confidence, knowing who you are, who you are, because all the work on science, back to science says, one of the most fascinating things about resilient children is that when they are really hit with a challenge or hit with adversity, what they go to and rely on are hobbies, hobbies. They decompress with a hobby. I started interviewing kids with their, what's your hobby? And they all looked at me dumbfounded. Who's got time for a hobby? So the first thing is, find what helps your kid just maybe look for how he can decompress and find healthy ways to decompress. Start when you go, I don't have anything. The kid doesn't have anything. That's okay. Start introducing things. Maybe it's knitting or woodworking or travel logs or books or music. It doesn't make any difference what it is, what the research from Ivy League schools tell me, is that when the kid comes to college, by the way, the number one time our kids are most likely to drop out prior to the pandemic, prior to the pandemic of college and a freshman year first semester, they come back. And the reason they come back is that we pushed them into a college where we think is wonderful for their total outlook on what they're going to be the rest of their lives. The number one correlation of where you will succeed and stay in the college. If it's a place when the child walks in, can I see myself here? Is it a place that supports me? Belonging needs are huge. Bill Damon, probably the best adolescent psychiatrist we have in the world is at Stanford. He's been watching incoming college freshmen at Stanford, best and the brightest, but he said they're coming in each year, emptier and emptier and emptier. They don't have the purpose and direction of knowing who they are because they've been pushed by who the parent thinks they should become. So maybe it's the first wake up call is figure out who your kid is, figure it out, or at least get him into a hobby or an interest, because that's going to help him decompress the stress, simple little ordinary things. We now know create resilience and we're overlooking those.
0: Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where UmLaw comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, We couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere, so we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Oombra, and it's game-changing. The Oombra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbras one-of-a-kind support, Comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around and find your umbra plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer
1: That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more Factor Meals in my refrigerator.
0: It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
1: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizerscom slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at biooptimizers.com/ slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you.
0: No artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa.
1: You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code PUBERTY at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them.
0: Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5.
1: Michelle, I want to go back to confidence because you make a distinction in the book between self-confidence and self-esteem. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting distinction but more importantly, if you could define a little deeper what self confidence is, and many of us would define it as feeling really great about yourself and feeling super, you know, positive. But in fact, you talk about knowing your weaknesses also as part of self confidence. And I'd love for you to talk for a couple minutes about what that means and why that's important for kids and adults to recognize both sides of that.
2: Starting with the research, Grizel and Grizel did a fascinating study of looking at 900 of the most extraordinary significant people of the 21st century. And we're talking, you can't name somebody important and they'll be on the, from Einstein to FDR to whatever. And then they went back and they looked at their childhoods and discovered a quarter of them would have been in a special ed classroom or identified as having a special needs. What the heck helped them bounce back? confidence in knowing what their strengths were. And if it wasn't the parent, it was a nanny or a teacher or somebody. The first thing about confidence is a real strong acceptance of yourself, knowing your strengths and accepting your weaknesses, but realizing that, hey, I'm not so good at this, but here's what I can go and backlog on in my strengths. It also is a quiet inner understanding of myself. I don't have to go, hey, I'm so good at this and this and this. And mom, can I get the gold star and the trophy for it? We've misinterpreted self-esteem. And in fact, self-esteem has backfired. We're now looking at kids who may have this mantra of, I'm so great and absolutely wonderful. And it doesn't materialize in their motivation. It doesn't materialize in their achievement. It doesn't materialize in their resilience. What does is helping their child first identify their strengths. Here's who you are and having the moments to be able to accept it. I'm not saying stop helping them if they're weak in math, but put a little more emphasis in their strength areas That's really the most dismal stat I discovered while writing Thrivers is 77% of the time. We focus more on our kids' weaknesses and try to fix them instead of their strengths. Here's where you are. When we keep on going, if you push into strengths, who's the really happy kid? University of Chicago says the happiest kids who grow up to be the happiest adults are in a flow state that they figured out what their strength is. And that's what they're
0: tailoring to their vocation mm-hmm. in their relationships. And that's what keeps them going. That has really shifted over time, the understanding and appreciation of it. And Dr. Gardner did a huge yes. body of work around this and, and the different types of learning styles and identifying what each individual learns well in more than one way, but not always in the most traditional classroom way and having educators begin to understand how to see multiple intelligences, how to see nature intelligence, how to see musical intelligence has really made a big difference here because then there's a lot of reinforcement there for kids.
2: Oh, I love that. And one of the things that probably if there's one part of Thrivers that parents say they appreciate the most and then they get hooked into it, there's a four-page core asset survey in confidence. And it's nothing more than 150 strengths. Uh, gardeners, multiple intelligence strengths are in there. Also your character strengths. Is your child kind or is he honest or mm-hmm. is he responsible? Is he respectful? they motivation strengths. They're just day-to-day hobby strengths. And what many parents say is, They overlook them. A fascinating thing that we're now doing with tweens and teens is we're having the mom or dad do it quietly, fill out the strengths, and then have the teen fill out their own strengths, then put them together and see how well you match. Are you identifying your child's strengths of ones he sees in himself or she sees in himself? And which ones are you overlooking? Because when we look at how stressed our children are right now, those strengths are what are going to help your child decompress. I, I was dealing with a, a, a girl um, late, uh, recently, and what she said, and she identified her strengths, it was music and hiking and books. She also had other ones that were her learning styles. But when I looked at that, I said, what do you use to reduce your stress? She says, I don't know. I said, it's books, mm-hmm. it's hiking and music. She said, Oh, didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, you're practicing that deep breathing. Go on the hike and get yourself out because you love hikes. And when the mom said, now what I should do, hike with her, do the things together with you because that'll help her as well as you, because that's what she's identified in herself.
1: Michelle, as kids head into puberty and they're in this moment of transformation, physical, emotional transformation, they're in this moment of individuating and you know, pushing back on their parents, creating autonomy, these skills, these abilities to identify themselves, understand themselves are in flux, right? It's almost yes. as if you've kind of thrown everything up in the air and you yes. wait to see where it's going to fall. What do you notice in your work as kids head into puberty and also they're heading into puberty younger and younger? What do you yep. notice in your work about how this kind of plays with the concept of these seven character traits?
2: The first thing, when I look at the seven, in terms of of puberty, we now know that eight is the new 13. It's just going down, down, down. What they've got to be able to do is find that confidence level so they can backlog on figuring out what their strength or their hobby or their interest is or their go-to thing and find somebody else, one other kid that they can join with. We have a lot of power when our kids are little because we can choose friendships based on proximity. She lives right next door to you. I'm going to drop you off. As they get older, kids, particularly middle school, choose friends based on similar interests or values. So be a little craftier. Find some friends who have maybe similar interests from your child and start rebooting them that
0: way. Okay, so let's talk about another classic middle school quality self-control or lack thereof. (laughs) Can you walk us through the importance of self-control, but also sort of give us a little reality check here. When kids are in their tweens and teens, their brains are at a point in their maturation where the limbic system, the feel-good, risk-reward, emotional part of the brain is fully developed and the really thoughtful prefrontal cortex is not. Help us understand how this trait of self-control can be supported and enhanced and fed and watered. Thank you for bringing that
2: up. Because self-control, if you looked at what's the single most important thing that every kid needs these in today's world, I'd say number three on the list is self-control of the Thriver traits. Seven on the list is hope. Put those two together and they make a lot of difference on self-control. But let's look at the middle school kid for a minute. First of all, know something. Every middle school kid right now says they're more irritable. Every middle school kid says right now they can't sleep as well as they used to. Every middle school kid says, my memory isn't like it used to be. Every middle school kid says, one kid says, I'm lazy. She's really not lazy. She's just not motivated because all of those factors together are impeding her ability to really shine like she used to. And that's because they don't have the skill set or the coping strategies to be able to get on with life. If there's a couple of things to know, first tween girls in particular we know that boys have always had a problem between girls having are having a problem anyway identifying emotions they don't read emotions as well as we think that they should and so they misinterpret it. that's an important point for you because some of the battles we're having is that they're cause they're telling you that you're always angry when that's what they see in us and you're not angry you're just tired the first thing is just say it because it'll restore your relationship. Self-control starts with understanding your own emotions. And maybe you can talk emotions a little more because that's the first thing. If we could help every middle school, high school, I don't care what age the kid is, identify when you start to get out of control, when you start to get stressed, what's that look like? And that is not a one-time lesson. At six o'clock, let's talk about it. It's ongoing little. I noticed something right before on every Wednesday, you go to do that time test, you seem to be a little more irritable. Or middle school girls say their hands start to get clammy, or you start to go like this with your fists, or maybe you grind your teeth, or maybe you rock back and forth. Notice there's 50,000 different stress signs, but what many kids don't know is their own stress sign, so they can't tell themselves, chill out or calm down. So the first thing is maybe as a family. Let's just honor it and let's go around and let's start identifying each other's stress sign and start with yourself, mom. The easiest thing is have your kid say, you know, how do you know when I'm stressed? And every kid's going to, my kids, three boys would say, you no, really do that weird thing with your eyes, mom. They know our signs, but they don't know theirs and don't get irritated. Go, well, thank you for telling me that. The moment I start to do that weird thing with my eyes, just let's make a signal. Maybe it's a quiet signal that I'm pulling my ear or you just go like this of a timeout signal for me. We'll all give each other space. And then let's start identifying your sign.
1: And I love that, Michelle, you're using humor, you're using humor and you're laughing at yourself and you're letting your kids be the experts about your crap, right? Yeah. So instead of you always being the experts on their crap and telling them and being the boss of their feelings or their reactions, you're flipping the narrative and you're letting them turn the tables on you. And I think people forget how powerful that can be for kids. Even you have grown adult children, right? You have older kids and even still it's powerful. It's funny. It's meaningful for them to get to turn the tables on you. And I think that's such a critical lesson to impart to the folks listening today, let the kids be the experts. You keep telling us they know better than we do what's going on, what they're feeling, what they're worrying about, all of those things. And I think we need to trust them to guide us and teach that. Oh, I I love um, that. Yes. And if we do that, the first thing
2: is we won't be reacting. We'll be responding. Responding is we're a lot more relaxed with it. We plan what we're going to do instead. And in fact, if we say to ourselves right now, the next time that happens, I'm going to laugh and make it into a humorous thing, or I didn't realize that. Thanks for telling me, let's figure this out. And when your kid, many middle school kids say, I just don't have the relationship to be able to open up, then you can ask the question to other way, what are your friends doing to help them? What works for them? If you flip it and have them talk about their friends instead of you
0: yourself, they're far more open because they're feeling like they're not going to be judged. That phrase you just uttered is fantastic that you are not reacting. You are responding. I am sitting here thinking about 12 different scenarios, which would have gone better had I responded and not reacted. We can all learn from it. The other thing is that you talk so much in your work about empathy and there is something really primal about if you want to teach your kids how to put themselves in someone else's shoes and also how to then act on that empathy, something that you write extensively about, you've got to do the same thing. And when your kids or when kids around you are giving you that raw feedback, it's hard. It's really easy to get defensive and say, wait, 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 wait. I'm the the adult here. You know, this one's about you. I have found in my own home that when I let go of that, when I shed that, it goes better. And I learned something from my kids.
2: Oh, first of all, you just nailed something that I am so passionate about. We're in sync. The best thing in a parenting toolkit is empathy. And that is figuring out where your kid's coming from. What does she need? How is he feeling? Where is he coming from? If you can get into their shoes, your whole parenting dynamic changes because now you'll be able to respond, not react. And it's just a wonderful dynamic. It's not easy being a parent. It's not easy. This is the hardest job in the entire world. But if we can step into the shoes of our kids and understand where they're coming from, that's that empathy piece. Not starting with trying to get them to empathize, but we to empathize with them. Now we got a response. Now we won't react. And our whole parenting changes because we're parenting based on what our kids need, not what we need. You'll always get a better response.
1: Michelle, I want to pick up on that for a second and I want to explore it. So empathy for our kids is critical. Yes, I want to explore the concept of empathy for ourselves. And I'll tell you why in the context of the puberty podcast, because so many people parenting kids through puberty did not grow up being taught about puberty themselves, right? They didn't learn the anatomical language for body parts. They were never taught about sex or intimate relationships. They feel ignorant. They feel at a loss and they are really hard on themselves about that. Our friend, our mutual friend, Tina Payne Bryson talks about how history is not destiny. And that it's even if you didn't grow up with it, you can still do it for your own family. You can still succeed. Can you give the folks listening a little bit of a pep talk about having empathy for themselves as they try to do their best for the kids in their lives who are not always easy and for whom they may not immediately have all the skills. What would you like to tell them to give them some confidence in this journey? Well,
2: number one is parenting starts with self-compassion. We always feel guilty about that, thinking, oh my gosh, I can't think of myself. When in reality, you have to think of yourself to be able to take care of yourself so you can take care of your kids. But the second thing is, we need to also realize that parenting is changeable. We've got this down to the point where we know we may be doing something wrong or we know that we were parenting and we continue usually to parent the way we were parented. But the first wake-up call is, it's a different world. So what are we going to do differently? You don't try to change the whole thing. You're going to be overwhelmed and your kids are going to start packing to move in next door. So instead, what you do is you say, what's one little thing that I want to get better at? We always, always are better off if we start with the why, if we identify the one thing that we may want to do to improve ourselves so that we can be better with our kids the way they are. And when it comes to puberty, maybe it's figuring out what do I need to know now? It's a different world. Your kids are going to be exposed to so much stuff so fast, so soon. Social media is going to be telling you, the, telling kids, you know, the sex lessons at age six when you're thinking that they don't know anything. That's why we need to just be a little more aware of it and be a little bit more cautious and just also affirming to ourselves so we can help our kids.
1: What do you hear from kids that they wish their adults were talking to them about and aren't talking to them about, right? Like it's a new world. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. We've got to catch up. What are you hearing from the kids about, about what they wish adults were talking to them about?
2: Well, this'll be guilt 101, but here's what the number one thing I hear so is like, everybody take a breath. Um, First is they say, Please tell me that you love me for who I am and not for my grade. I can't tell you how many times that one comes up. And the reason they say that this is going to make us all feel better is that they love us so much and they don't want to disappoint us. Mm -hmm. I know they put so much time and energy into it, but I really am doing the best I can. I can't do anything better. That one always hits me and it hits me every single time. The second thing is, listen listen a little more because we keep hearing the same repetitive thing or you don't let me finish what I want to say. And as a result, you're not hearing the same thing or you've given us the same repeat lecture over and over again without having the two-way conversation. Mm -hmm.
0: What we need to do is do more of a a dialogue and not a monologue. Again, this circles back to everything we've talked about. If you are in dialogue, you can learn from them and then you can tweak your your approach to raising them or guiding them, and it will be more successful if we don't listen. Sometimes I don't want to hear what I know I oh, am going to hear. It's yeah. it's hard. But if we don't listen, we're just putting our heads in the sand and we're yeah. not getting to where we need to get to help them.
2: Yeah. So it, little tips on that, really simple little tips. The first one is sometimes right now, our kids are concerned about face to face contact. Mm -hmm. Along the way, we can teach them always look at the color of the talker's eyes because it'll make you be more assertive. But at this point right now, have the conversation side by side instead of face to face. It will be less threatening for a child. Boys in particular say, if you want to talk to me, do something, do something like bake cookies with me or go shoot some balls with me or doing gets the kids to open up. Let them Put the pause button on your conversations. One of the most interesting thing as an educator, I remember, came from a woman named Mary Bud Rowe. And what she did is she discovered that too often what we do is we ask kids a question and then we immediately want an answer. But if she said we waited at least three seconds, you will get not only the kid who wouldn't say anything to open his mouth the kid who maybe would have said a sentence to say a you know a, more than a sentence maybe 3 and the kid who would have sentence said anyway would come up with an actual dissertation pause and wait and just acknowledge the waiting time because when children are frazzled when their focusing abilities are short when their stress levels are high Just the ability to think goes down. Ours does, and so does theirs. So little ways on that would be help. Also find one thing that you can do together. You know, I I used to fake, I love that movie. Okay, let me sit with that movie. I hated the movie, whatever it was, but I'd sit and watch it because it was my one assembling point to be able to get the kids to just listen sitting on a couch together.
0: As we wrap conversations, we ask our guests to help us come up with some sort of end comment. Maybe it's a reflection on something that came up in the conversation. Maybe it's something that didn't come up and we each take turns doing it. And we, because we're springing it on you, we'll go first. Um, and, and I'll just- got mine. <laughs> okay, I got mine. You want to go
1: first? I of love all it. our guests, Michelle, I knew Michelle would be able to go first. I have no what? doubt. <laughs> I, well, I think the commonality of everything that's come up today and what I hear
2: from parents over and over again Is that we've got to understand that that resilience is teachable. It's not locked into DNA. It's not something that's going to come on a worksheet. This is an intentional long term haul gain. I I would hope that every parent learns it's a different world. We have to reboot, but thrivers are made, not born. Mm -hmm. And the commonality you want to do is help your kid know you got it, sweetie pie. You got it. But only we're going to do that. We do a great job when they're two bounce yourself up. Keep on going. That's God, sweetie pie. It's a now we got to look at our reaction no more, but response. And what we'll have as a generation of kids who will be able to thrive.
1: And I want to piggyback on that, Michelle, because what you said about chunking the fear, which is such an amazing phrase, leave it to Navy SEALs to come up with that <laughs> phrase, is that You can't just turn to your kid and say, oh, toughen up, kiddo. Oh, get over it. Or, you know, move on, which is what so many parents say to their tweens and teens because they're pains in the butts. But what we need to do is break down those baby steps so that eventually, yes, they have agency. Eventually, yes, they can do it on their own. But in the meantime, we have to give them stepping stones to get there. And that requires our self-control and patience. And it requires our belief in our kids that in fact, yes, they can do it.
0: Oh my God, I love when our takeaways sound like they're connected. Here's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Here's mine. I'm obsessed with respond, don't react. And it ties into that concept so beautifully because as we see our kids face challenges, if we can respond and chunk it out instead of reacting and telling them how they should feel or what they should do, we will guide them in a better way. And then here's the amazing thing when they become reactionary tweens and teens, we can model for them what it is to respond and not mm-hmm. react. And when the hormones are surging and their brain is under construction and it's all going sideways. Just to have that little mantra, I'm so excited to use it in my house. I can't even tell you. I'm like, it's going to be everywhere on the refrigerator, everywhere. I'd love it. Michelle, you are really brilliant and a treasure and we are grateful to have had you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, you are so welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Come back and visit us again. Okay. Oh, I'd love to.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at thepubertypodcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myumla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye.